Well, y'all open up your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 5. Woo. Ephesians 5. We'll start in verse 23 here in just a minute. Well, last week we began a series that uh, is basically based on the concept of biblical manhood. And last week we talked about how as men we have been called uh, to be leaders in the arena of the church, in our families, and in our marriages. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to talk specifically about how God has called us to the arena of leadership in marriage. And, uh, and men, if you've been around the church long enough, you have heard this at some point in your life, that you have been called and been commanded by God to be not only the physical, but the spiritual leader of your wife uh, and the spiritual leader of your home. But the problem is, and I'm in this boat, is that for most of us, we don't have a clue how to do that, right? We've heard it our whole life. We don't know how to do it. And for those of us who do have a clue, we're not very good at it. A lot of us are. And so I, I found this video. I think it just got released on YouTube in the last week or so. It's pretty funny. Uh, feel free to laugh. But it, uh, I think it sums up real well how we as men struggle in the arena of just having a clue about how to lead our wives. So let's show this video real quick. It's just there's all this pressure, you know. And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. How many of you guys have had a conversation like that at some point? <laughs> One guy's honest. <laughs> Man, you know, and, and the thing is, guys, is that besides the fact that women are really complicated is that for many, it's true, and for many of us, if the veil of our private lives were kind of opened up, one of the things that we would, would be found there is that for a lot of us, maybe you're great businessmen, uh, you're doing really well in the profession that God has called you to, maybe you're a great leader and whatever arena is that God's placed you outside the home, but for a lot of us, myself included, we're not great biblical leaders in our marriage. And honestly, for a long time, that was really me. I, I had such a passion in my early years. Jennifer and I have been married for, um, are we going 17, baby? All right, 17, thank you, got that right. But um, 
we're going to be married 17 years in August. And because of my passion for the church, starting the church, because of all the stuff that I was going through and, and trying to do in my career, that the church, my job, if you will, had become kind of like a mistress to me. And so I was pretty much putting my God-given responsibility to lead and to love my wife in the way that God's called me to uh, on cruise control. And so about the first, and, and by the way, let me say this. I, I'm about to just jump into some just honesty here, but God's done an amazing work in our marriage. As you hear this, just know that God's changed me in a lot of ways. Our marriage over the last few years has been as good as it's ever been, and it's awesome. But for the first 11 years of our marriage, I just stunk at this thing that I'm talking about today. But the problem was, is that I thought I was doing great. Jennifer and I, first 11 years or so, rarely argued. Um, she is not the kind of girl that complains. She's not a complainer. And so I just thought, well, we're not really arguing, so I thought we were doing awesome. And she has a very strong walk with Jesus, and so she was kind of out doing her own thing with Jesus. I was kind of doing my thing with Jesus, and she seemed to be doing okay, and, and so we kind of did our own thing. I thought everything was great. If you'd have come up and asked me, Matt, you know, how are you doing as a husband about your tent? I said, man, I'm a rock star. <laughs> I'm knocking this thing out of the park because everything was just kind of going along, I thought, smoothly. One day she came up to me, and I don't remember what spurred it on, but she started crying. She sat down, and she said, we need to talk. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, Matt, I want you to know that I would never leave you. She goes, I'd never leave you. I'm never going to leave you. She, I was, I, she said, I would never cheat on you, ever. She said, I love Jesus too much to do that. She goes, I want you to know that I'm not doing okay. She goes, I'm not okay in this marriage. I don't feel like we're doing okay. And then I was confused at that point because I thought I was doing great. I thought I was this amazing husband. I got this wife sitting on the bed crying going, I'm not okay in this marriage. I asked her, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And this, these are some of the things she said to me. And the day she goes, I feel like you're here with me physically. But she said, I don't feel like you're here with me emotionally. So I feel like you're here with me physically, but I don't like, feel like you're here with me spiritually. She made the statement. She goes, Matt, you feel so distant to me all the time. She said, I don't feel pursued by you. She said, when we were dating, I felt like you pursued me all the time. But now that we're married and we've been married a while, I don't feel like you pursue me anymore. She said, I, I don't feel like you're interested in me as a person. She said, you're a pastor, and I feel like you're interested in everybody else's walk with Jesus, but Matt, I don't feel like you're interested in my walk with Jesus. And she heard me, she told me this, I was confused, and then she told me a story that really got my attention. She talked about how, because, because I'm so distant, I wasn't paying attention to her, I wasn't caring for her, pursuing her, she said she was walking to the car one day, and some guy came along and just helped her with the kids. She had a kid in a carrier, and a kid in a stroller, and kind of just helped her put the stuff in the car, and and just said, hey, hope you have a good day. It was no big deal. And she goes, man, I didn't lust. I didn't have any inappropriate thoughts. It was no big deal. But she made the statement to me. She goes, man, I just want you to know how good it felt just to be paid attention to. And when she said that, that got my attention. That even though I was doing all these good things for the Lord and pursuing the kingdom and the church, I had so neglected my wife to the point that somebody could just help her in the door and it would, it, would, it would feel good to her. Now, all this was going on 
um, all this was happening. And about the same time, that was back when I did a lot of counseling here at the church. And I was counseling three or four different couples that were going through affairs. And typically, in this little section of time, the women, was, the women were the one that were, they were having an affair. And they did something interesting as I was counseling them. Inevitably, at some point in time in the, in the counseling, the woman that was having the affair would point at her husband. And all three of them said the exact same thing because it caught my attention the third time it happened. They pointed at their husband and they said, you know, Matt, he's the one I really love. This is the guy that I really love. And then they would say something to the effect of, but he's just so distant. And he doesn't pursue me anymore. And I don't feel cherished by him. He's just so into his work or he's just so into whatever hobby that he's into. He doesn't pursue me, cherish me, communicate how he feels about me. And then inevitably, the next statement out of their mouth was, but there was this guy at work who did. And one thing led to another. And in my mind, I'm sitting there and I just had this conversation with my wife. And then I'm having this conversation with these women and, and, and in my brain, I'm thinking, what in the world? And this is a guy who's just completely clueless. And like, what in the world is this cherishing, pursuing stuff that these women keep talking about? What is the big deal? Right? And it was, it was the exact same time period that, that Jennifer and I had this conversation. I'm having these conversations with these women that the book series Twilight was going on. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember that? If you don't, don't worry about it. But basically, here's the thing. Twilight is a story of this girl who falls in love with a vampire, right? Now, that's it. And you think, no big deal. But that, I just looked it up. 160 million of those books have been sold. And they say that for every book that's sold, three people actually read it. And so if you do the math, basically every woman in America read those books. I mean, just that every woman in the whole world read the book. And everybody at the same period of time, everybody was reading the book. Everybody was talking about this book. My wife, which is not this huge avid reader, she picks it up. She cranks him out in like three days. And so I'm like, that's so weird. And so I'm walking in my office one day and there's some women that were eating lunch and I could overhear them and they were talking about Twilight. And I stopped. I said, stop. Y'all quit eating for just a second. I got to ask you a question. I'm like, every girl I know in the world is reading this book right now. My wife just picked them up. She read all of them in a day. I said, why do you women like this Twilight book so much? And one of the girls kind of raised her hand. Well, she didn't raise her hand, but one of them kind of spoke up. And (laughs) you may speak now. That's how it works in our office. Um, (laughs) But she she started explaining that, is it it Edward? Is that his name, Jen? Edward? Okay, y'all know. Sorry, Edward. This is what she said. She said, Edward, Matt is the perfect man. And I looked at her and I go, what do you mean he's a perfect man? Dude is an albino vampire. <laughs> I mean, he's a perfect man. And this is what she said, kid you not. She said, man, he's just so into her. He just cherishes her. He just pursues her. They're like, they'll be at a, a dinner or something and, and the waiter will try to talk to him and he just ignores the waiter and stares at her the whole time. <laughs> and so I walk out of that conversation, true story before Jesus. I walked into my office, I turned on Drudge Report or something. I was reading the news and there was an article about Twilight. I'm like, I just heard this. I click on it and I kid you not, this is what the article said. It said, the success of Twilight 
is a testament to the failure of the American marriage. The success of Twilight is a testament to the failure of the American marriage and men's inability to understand and meet the deep needs of a woman's heart. And so I've got, I've got a wife that's saying, you don't pursue me. You feel so distant. You don't cherish me. I don't feel like you're present. I got women in the church that are having affairs on their husband because they don't pursue them and cherish them and value them. And, and, and I got women all over the church reading a book about a dude with fangs because he <laughs> cherishes and pursues and values this girl. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that there is a deep need in the heart of women. And husbands, if you have a brain cell in your head, you will listen to what I'm saying right now. There's a deep need in the heart of women, whether they'll admit it or not, and they probably will if you ask them to be pursued and to be valued and to be cherished and to be led to the person of Jesus through the man that God has placed in their lives. But as I said earlier, we struggle with that as guys. We don't know how to do it. The good news is the Bible tells us exactly how to do it. And so let's look at it. Ephesians chapter five, real quick. Ephesians chapter five, let's go through the text today. We'll be done. Ephesians chapter five, look at verse 23. Paul starts off, he speaks to the wives here. And he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I look at verse 25, because this man, this is when he starts speaking to us. He tells us how we're to love our wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now listen carefully, because most of us have heard this verse a bunch if we've been in the church for any time at all. But listen to what he says, because he gives us a command. The first thing he says to us, he says, husband, love your wives. That's a command of scripture. Love your wives. But then he doesn't just leave us there. He actually tells us what that love is supposed to look like. He says, this is how you love your wife. He said, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so it begs the question, I'm supposed to love my wife. How am I supposed to love my wife? Scripture tells us you're supposed to love her the way Jesus loved the church. Now that begs another question. How did Jesus love the church? If I'm called to love my wife the way Jesus loves the church, how did Jesus love the church? Well, there's countless ways that Jesus loved the church, but there's one way that sticks out to me the way that Christ loved the church, and here's this, listen. Jesus loved the church, and he loved her first. Jesus loved the church, and he loved her first. When the church, when us, when we were still in our sin, when we were still in our brokenness, when we were still in our dysfunction, Jesus did not sit back with his arms folded in heaven and say, hey, get your act together and then maybe I'll come love you. You do what's right and then I'll love you. No, when we were yet still sinners, when we were still in our sin, Jesus came and he loved. He loved. That's why 1 John 4.19 says, we love because Christ first loved us. We love, you love, we love. We love him because he came and he first loved us. In my first 10 years of marriage, first decade of my marriage, I was literally doing it the opposite of that. 
I mean, I would have never admitted this in a million years, but at the time what I was doing, and I was kind of looking at my wife with my arms folded and going, hey, you take care of me, you pursue me, you cherish me, you value me, you meet my needs, and then I'll pursue and cherish and value you in return. That is not how Jesus loved us, right? We're called literally to do the exact opposite of that, which means that whatever your wife is doing, whatever your wife is not doing, whether she deserves it or doesn't deserve it, your call is to love her the way Jesus loved us, which is to go and to love her first. Now, think about how do I do that? What does that look like? One of the best resources I've ever come across uh, is the book called The Five Love Languages. And just real practical way to do this, to love your wife, love your wife first. And I read this years ago, but it didn't really sink in the magnitude of it. And basically the point of the book is this, is that everybody in the room gives and receives love in one of five ways. That if somebody does this to you, then you feel loved. All right, now men, hear this. And here, well, let me just read them to you real quick. Well, first one's acts of service. Okay, you serve somebody, they feel loved. Gifts, give somebody gift. Physical touch, you touch them, they feel loved through your touch. Words of affirmation, you say something of value, affirming to them, and they feel loved. And quality time, when you're not just hanging with them, but you're spending quality time with them, that's one way. Man, real simple, it's gonna blow your mind, it's simplicity. Find the way your wife receives love, and you do that first, even if she's not doing it to you. Okay? Now, my problem was for years is that I would try to show my wife love, but I would try to show her love in a way that she didn't receive love. Okay? So I would, I would have friends that their wife would love to get gifts, and so they'd give their wife a gift, and their wife would just feel really loved and cherished and pursued and valued, and it would do the trick. And so I'm thinking, I can do that. I got a credit card. So I would buy my wife something, and I would give it to her, and she would appreciate the gift but it really wouldn't minister to her heart. And so I'm thinking, okay, that didn't work. And so I had friends that their wives, um, their love language was acts of service. And I have friends that that's all they've got to do. All the brothers got to do is after dinner, get up and do the dishes. And it's guaranteed sex every single time. (laughs) Every time. And so I'm thinking, I can do that, right? I got this. So we'd have dinner. She stands up to do the dishes. I'm like, no, baby, sit down, girl. I got this. I got this. So I'd get up. I'd do the dishes. I'd be drying my hands off. I'm turning around. What's up? You you like that? And she'd look at me and she'd go, thank you so much for doing the dishes. And she'd walk off, right? And I'd be like, that's it. (laughs) You see, she appreciated it, but it didn't meet the deep needs of (coughs) her heart. And here's why. Because my wife really receives love, really feels love through two things, quality time and words of affirmation. Got any quality time, words of affirmation people in here? So that's hers. And so if I write Jennifer a text during the day, hey girl, thinking about you, you're awesome. (laughs) She's like, oh, you're the sweetest guy that has ever lived. And she feels so loved. If I write a note to her, like just actually a handwritten note, that's just, it's, it, that's it. She's kept every note I've ever written to her in our whole relationship. It's just something about that. She just really feels love because of that. Quality time. She loves it when I talk to her. When I go on dates, I used to, back in the day for years, 
I would just be really focused on my sermon. She'd be sitting there talking and I'd be thinking about point three. And so I was distant. That's where she got the distant thing. And I've just learned that if for her to feel love when we're on a date, when we're together at quality time, I've got to you know, turn the phone off, forget the sermon and just be there and be present and actually listen. And it's crazy, but that just really ministers to her heart. You know, if, and, and, and not just listen, but talk, like ask her, hey, how, you know, How's your walk with Jesus? How are you doing, girl? How are things going? And we talk, and it's just blow. It just she feels so loved. Now there's a problem with all that. I hate writing notes, right? <laughs> I hate it. I'm gonna tell you something. I hate hate worse than writing notes, y'all. And that's talking. I hate to talk. I talk for a living, and so the last thing I want to do is go home and talk. But here's the thing. It's a command on my life. And not only is it a command on my life, but I love that girl. I'm nuts about that girl. I'm crazy about the girl. And I want her to not only know it intellectually, but I want her to feel my love for her. And that's what we're called to do. When it says love your wife like Christ loved the church, you find the way she receives love. And whether she deserves it, earned it, whether she's doing it to you, you go and you go first and you love her that way. All right? Let's continue. Verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now watch this. This is a little bit harder one here. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. For her. He gave himself up for her. That not only did Jesus, or rather, we're called to love her the way Jesus loved the church, but we as men are called to give ourselves up for our wives. Now, that's a lot harder, I think, than going and finding her love language and loving her first. It's you're giving up your rights, you're giving up your freedom in a lot of ways in order to minister to her. It's going to look differently for every man in the room. Every one of our wives has different needs. But here are two ways that I've had to give myself up over the years in order to minister and love her and to love her first. One is in the area of purity. Now, not only am I a man that's called to, to purity because I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm his, I'm the Lord's, I belong to him, and I'm supposed to be a one-woman man because of my relationship with Jesus, but I also have made a lot of decisions over my life to do things in a certain way so that my wife feels that love, that she knows that I'm a one-woman man. And so here's some of the things I do. I don't travel alone. I don't travel alone. That's giving myself up because I'm an introvert. But I'm, I've got somebody with me all the time, but I don't want to be in a situation, in the wrong situation. I can't tell you how many men over the years that I've seen throw everything away because they were on some trip and some girl hit on them. I don't travel alone. I have protective software on my computer and my phone. That's critical. Years ago, if you wanted to look at pornography, you had to get up and go, buy, go somewhere and buy it. Now every vile thing you could ever imagine is in your pocket 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> Y'all can't do this, but I got this guy on my staff who's a genius, and I handed him my phone one day, and I said, Doug, you have 24 hours to get this thing where I can't look at pornography ever, and if I can do it, you're fired, all right? And so he did it, man. This thing's locked down. But I have all this stuff on there. I have a password on my television where it blocks content. She's the one with the password. She's got access to my financial stuff. She's got access to my email, my phone, my Twitter account. And you say, Matt, well, that seems a little extreme. 
And it's true. I've had, I've had to give up a lot for her. But you know what? Maybe it's time we got extreme. Maybe it's time we just got a little extreme in order to love our wives because the last time I checked, Jesus was extreme in his love for us. Another area, um, and this is probably the hardest one for me, is I'm working on giving myself up in the area of conflict. I got a temper. I got anger issues. Got it honestly from my dad. And what I found is this, is that Jesus, as, as men, and this is true for women and men, but Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. And there's a verse, this is an amazing verse. Don't turn there, just watch it. 1 Peter 2.21. I want you to listen to how Jesus responds in the midst of conflict. Now think about this. If there's ever been a man that's ever been wronged, it was Jesus. Amen? This guy never did anything wrong. And so in every conflict he ever got into, he's being wronged. Watch how he responds. 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, Peter says. To this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so Peter starts off and says, hey, Jesus suffered, but he didn't just suffer for your sins. He suffered to leave you an example on how you are to suffer. That's what that just said. He goes on in verse 22. It says he committed no sin. That in the midst of his suffering, he committed no sin. That's your example. That when you're suffering, you don't sin in return. It says neither was deceit found in his mouth. In verse 23, this is, the, this is the tough one. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus was reviled, he was right. But yet he didn't revile in return. It goes on. It says, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's easy to say. And that's really hard to do. But it's, when, it's, what, it's what happens when you're giving yourself up. I remember uh, a pastor one time years ago, Tommy Nelson. Some of you may have heard him preach. And he said something one time. And I remember when he said it, I remember thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He said this. He said, men, he was preaching on Song of Solomon. And he said, men, young men, when you get married... He said, you need to lose every argument you ever get into with your wife. You know, barring she's doing something heretical, you lose every argument. I remember thinking that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the older I get, the more right he is. And some of you young guys think that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. And when you're 40, you're going to go, Carter was brilliant. <laughs> I started listening to that when I was 28 means that in conflict, you take the initiative to bring peace. Why? Because you're the man God called you to lead. It means that when things like the volume of voices and the harshness of words start to escalate, you de-escalate. Why? Because you're the man God called you to lead, called you to love first. It means that as men... You don't throw the punch, you take the punch. And then after you take the punch, you turn the other cheek. Why do you do that? Because when you do, you sure do look a lot like Jesus. Here's the thing. Love your wife like Christ loved the church, which means you love her first. 
And then you find the areas and the ways that you need to do this for your wife and you lay those things down for her because that's what Jesus did. Last thing here, Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Watch, that he might sanctify her. Why did Jesus love the church? Why did Jesus lay himself down for the church? Why as men are we called to do the same thing? The scripture says so that we might sanctify her. Wow. That we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I don't have much time here. Let me just tell you what that verse means. What that verse means is the number one person responsible for the sanctification of your wife, men, is you. The number one person that God is looking at for the sanctification of your wife is not me. It's not Beth Moore. It's you. It's you. Okay? Now, I don't think that means you carry around a Bible all the time and, you know, just preach at her constantly. I don't think that's what that means. But I think what it does mean is that you care about things like her prayer life. Do you know what your prayer life, or your wife's prayer life is like? Do you know? Do you know if it's healthy or not? Have you asked? Have y'all prayed together? When's the last time that you took the initiative to pray with your wife? It means caring about things like your wife's devotional life. And guys, I've said this stuff. I'm not good at it, but I'm, try, I'm trying by the power of the Spirit to be a good husband in this way, to, to be not just the guy that says, hey, Jen, come sit on the front row and listen to me preach, but actually be a pastor to her in my home. But caring about her devotional life, do you know what she's studying right now? Do you know if she's studying right now? It means caring about things like her spiritual gift. Do you know what your wife's spiritual gift is? And more importantly, not do you know what your wife's spiritual gift is, but is she, do you know if she's getting the opportunity to utilize her spiritual gift and be used by the Spirit of God? Man, this is the kind of stuff that we're called to do, right? And the reason that we're called to do this is not only where the Scripture says we're presenting our wives before the Lord one day, all right? Because so many of our wives right now, I shared this last week, so many of our wives right now, men, they're spiritual widows. We're with them physically, but spiritually, they're all by themselves. They're all alone. And the scripture very clearly calls us to love them the way that Christ loved the church, give ourselves up for them in verse 26, that he might sanctify her. It's so spiritually critical that you engage in her walk with Jesus. And not only is it for her spiritual good, but I'm telling you, men, there is not a woman in this world, there is not a woman in this world who's in Christ Jesus that, that, that doesn't long for a man to lead her spiritually, right? If you'd asked me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, what my goals were in life, if I was honest with you, I think they would have had a lot more to do with the church, my career, if you will, the things I wanted to accomplish through the work that God had called me to. But as I stand here today as a guy who's a couple months away from turning 40, which sounds really old to me, these are my two goals in life right now, and I mean this. Number one goal, 
Not necessarily in this order, but here's my first one. When my kids are standing over my casket, and God willing, they will. Because I stood beside my father as he looked down at his father. One of my goals is that they stand and look at me at the end of my days, that they would be able to look at me and say, that is, or that was a man of God. My father was a man of God. I want them to be able to say, my father pointed me to Jesus. And if anything they could say about me, I want them to be able to say that. And the other thing is, I want my wife to be able to look at me on that day, and I want her to be able to say, I would marry him all over again. I'd marry him all over again. Because guys, I don't care what you accomplish in this life. I don't care what I accomplish in this life. I don't care how big your 401k is. I don't care how big your house is. I don't care how much of a success you are in your career or how much of a failure you are in your, you are in your career. If your children can look at you and say, that was a man of God. If your wife can look at you and say, I would marry that man a thousand times over again. I'm telling you, you are a success in the eyes of our Lord. And that's the way I want to live. I'll finish with this quote. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian in American history. His preaching sparked the great awakening in this country. I mean, if there's anybody that we could point at and say, this guy was a success, this guy was used by God, it would be Jonathan Edwards. But one of the things that you know about him, if you spend any time studying, is not only was this guy a great pastor, but this guy was probably a better husband. And he was probably a better father. And when he died, his wife wrote a letter to his daughter Right after Jonathan Edwards' death, she wrote to her daughter and said this. She said, oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may all kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths for the Lord has done it. And you want to talk about a woman that was washed in the water of the word. This is one. He said, we lay our hands on our mouths for the Lord has done it and God has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives, she writes, but my God lives and he has my heart. And oh, what a legacy. My husband and your father has left for us. Men who in this room would not want their wives to be able to say that about us, our kids to be able to say that about us. Oh, what a legacy. My husband, your father's left. By the grace of God, by his power, by his great grace, let's live our lives in such a way that the people closest to us can say that. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We just, we just, uh, I doubt seriously there's a man in this room, including myself, that doesn't need to repent. And Father, I just pray by your spirit that we wouldn't leave this place with the notion that we need to go out and we need to do better, Lord, but that we would come to the cross right now and, and, and on our knees come before you and just ask you to come and do a work in us and 
and change us and because Jesus is the only hope we have. And Lord, we realize we're not playing games here. This is not just some optional thing for us, but as, as men who are in Christ, we're called to it, we're commanded to it. So I pray we would do it for you. And I pray we'd do it for our wives and our families, that they would walk through this life as men, or rather as women and children that are loved and pointed to you by the man you put in their lives. I ask that not for our glory, but I ask it for yours. So I pray you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.